my dear brothers and my sisters. Today God is speaking to us from Romans chapter 14. Let's read Romans 14. Actually, we'll read the whole chapter. But today I'm going to be preaching mainly on verses 1 to 12. Romans chapter 14. This is the eternal word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats, let not the one who eats, despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord. While the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for whatever he approves. But whoever has doubts 
is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is eternal word of God. May he add his blessing to our hearts. You may be seated. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to your people. Lord, you have spoken to us through your Son, who is the Word made flesh. You have spoken to us, O oh Lord, through the inspiration of Holy Scripture. And now, O oh God, as we open your word, we ask that you may once again speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, this is a text dealing with issues of conscience. God, help us to understand this text rightly. Help us to examine ourselves in light of this text that we might live in a manner pleasing to you, in a manner that builds up the church of Christ to the glory of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, God has given me the great privilege of being able to open his word to you in a text related to Christians, conscience, and the church. And in fact, this is part one of that sermon series on Christians, conscience, and the church. And we're going to be looking today, and we're going to be look, <clears throat> Lord willing, next week at Romans chapter 14 and, and Romans chapter 15. The past year has provided the church of Jesus Christ much fodder for disunity, division, and disagreement. If it wasn't government shutdowns, it was masking mandates. If it wasn't contentious political environment here and abroad, then it was a biased media. If it wasn't restraints on worship or personal liberties, it was some other issue that produced difference, disagreement and potentially disunity. We've heard appeals to conscience on this side of an issue, or appeals to conscience on this side of an issue, and at best, it makes Christians feel confused and overwhelmed, and at worst, can disrupt and splinter the body of Christ. Well, what does the Word of God say then about such issues of conscience that produce controversy? How does the word of God want us to behave in the midst of uh, the flurry of disagreement and, and difference? With God's help, these are the questions that I aim to address in the next two weeks as we look at this text. And today we're going to lay the groundwork in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, by defining what the conscience is. That's absolutely essential that we understand what the conscience is biblically. And then by looking at 
what should our attitude be personally when we approach controversies of conscience? And then next week, Lord willing, we will explore how do we live out our convictions of conscience in light of Christ and the church from the latter part of Romans 14 and chapter 15. So let's begin by God's grace. To understand this passage before us, it's very helpful to remember the overall theme of the book of Romans. And I want to summarize it for you. All people, both Jews and Gentiles, fall short of the glory of God and must pay the penalty for their sin, which is death. But God justifies guilty and condemned sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Romans 1.17 says, The righteous shall live by faith. There is a righteousness apart from the law, to which the law and the prophets testify, that is, apart from works, by faith in Jesus Christ. And this justification by faith is the basis of unity between Jew and Gentile. And that's the point that Paul drives home throughout the whole book of Romans. The the theological truth is is hammered home in, in chapters 1 to 11. And then the practical outworking of how this produces love and unity in the body of Christ, even bridging this generations-old gap between Jew and Gentile is hammered home in chapters 12 to 16. And this major theme of justification by faith is the basis for unity between Jew and Gentile in Christ. And it's the basis for unity on any difference arising between Christians. The result uh, of, the, uh, of the, 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 the fact of justification by faith is that the Roman church began to reflect the makeup of Rome itself. Gentile Christians from all over the world were being saved and brought into the church and converted by the gospel. And at the same time, Jewish, Jewish Christians from wherever they were were being saved and brought into the church. And now the church was being filled with those who for millennia had been culturally and theologically and language-wise and culturally in every respect separate from one another. This diversity reveals the glory of God in the gospel that those who are justified by faith are made one in Christ. This is the, the glory that we can enjoy. That though we are different from each other in many respects, justification by faith makes us one. And it allows for us to go on such an exploration of how this oneness is played out in conscience controversies. This diversity within the Roman church produced challenges. And one of the challenges that it produced was the fact that people were coming into the church with different conscience convictions. And and we can imagine what the conscience convictions were rooted in, right? Some were Jews. Some had their whole life abstained from meat for various reasons, especially unclean meat. And they had observed days, feast days, fasting days. And they had all kinds of other ceremonial laws that they had lived by. On the other hand, the Gentiles were free from these things. And so 
The result was that these differences produced potentially division within the body. And so in Romans 14 and 15, Paul is addressing these specific matters. We call them secondary matters, matters not directly commanded in Scripture and not directly forbidden in Scripture, those that are not uh, related directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These secondary matters, and he aims at three particularly, eating meat, celebrating days, and drinking wine. But, but this chapter is not only limited to these three issues. It provides the instructions from God for navigating conscience controversies that inevitably arise in every church and within every group of believers. And so, as before we even jump into this text, we need to answer the question, well, what is the conscience? None are more helpful in answering this question than the Puritans. They spent much time considering the conscience. And the Puritan writer William Ames defines the conscience as a man's judgment of himself according to the judgment of God in him. In other words, conscience is a part of the understanding that renders judgment on a person, either for or against, whether his actions be good or evil. William Perkins, another Puritan, calls the conscience God's arbitrator within us. Human beings have a conscience, and that conscience judges us whether we are good, whether we are evil, according to the truth written on our hearts. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 that the organ, that the conscience is the organ endowed by the Creator to render judgment against each person. Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So this is the human conscience. It's an organ of warning, an organ of judgment. But we have to remind ourselves that the conscience renders judgment according to what a person already believes. It does not tell a person what to believe, how to live, what is right, what is wrong. It's a warning system that activates when our actions violate what we believe to be good or what we believe to be evil. Therefore, inevitably, every human conscience is defiled by sin. For many unbelievers, their conscience might be numbed to the point of being unfeeling. They have suppressed it for so long that it is seared. And they go about life oblivious to whether their actions please God or not, and it really doesn't matter to them. On the other hand, for others, for un other unbelievers, their defiled conscience is a miserable thing that is constantly accusing them. And it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can solve the problem of a defiled conscience. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says that the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ solves the problem of a defiled conscience in the gospel. 
Now, the, the point of the conscience then in the unbeliever is to confirm the sentence of guilty under the law of God. And then the gospel is to release the sinner from that guilty sentence through Jesus himself, the Son of God, taking the punishment that we deserve as violators of God's law, bearing the wrath of God against sin in his death on the cross for his people. And, and this is what frees us and cleanses us from a dead conscience, from a defiled conscience, from a broken conscience, so that we might serve with clearness of conscience before God. So the one who is born again is cleansed, is washed with pure water, is set free from the curse and the condemnation of the law. And moreover, by union with Christ, this believer is treated as possessing the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that even when our conscience is condemning us because of our lack of conformity to Christ, we can look to Christ and we can say to our conscience, not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ is the basis of my perfect acceptance unto God. And when the devil accuses us and the devil is the accuser of the brethren because of our weak conscience or because of our defiled conscience, because of indwelling sin, we know that God sanctifies our imperfect obedience with Christ's perfection, freeing us from the rigor of the law which condemns all imperfection and also freeing us from the ceremonial commands and external rules which have been fully fulfilled in Christ. So the conscience for the Christian takes upon a different role. It's no longer an organ of judgment, but a guard that warns us against displeasing God. Think of the conscience like rumble strips on the road. You, you, I'm sure, have driven on a freeway and you're a little sleepy and you are driving and you start eyelids getting heavy and you start veering off into the side of the road and then you drive over the rumble strips and the rumble strips uh, vibrate your car and wake you up and warn you that you are leaving the right way and you are going on to the wrong way and you better take warning. That's what the conscience is for. It serves to warn you that you are drifting into a direction that is displeasing to God. But herein lies the issue. Not every Christian has their rumble strips located in the same location. And that brings us to today's passage in Romans chapter 14. For some in the Roman church, they understood completely what justification by faith means. They understood that justification by faith has freed them from any lingering requirement to ceremonial law. Paul calls these Christians those who are strong in faith. In contrast, there were others who knew that they were justified by faith, but they were still unsure in their convictions about what this faith allows and what this faith prohibits. They were still weak in understanding their liberation from external things in relation to God. And Paul calls these the weak in faith. They're not weak in the, in the sense that they don't possess saving faith. They're Christians. They're soundly saved. But they have not fully worked out what justification by faith alone 
by grace alone in Christ alone means in the day to day. So look at what Paul writes to these in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Paul is clear that he wants those who are who have different opinions within the church between the weak conscience Christians and the strong conscience Christians, these conscience controversies, he's saying uh, not to, to welcome one another and not to quarrel over opinions. These conscience controversies, we, we have to remember, they're not about core doctrines. They're, they're about things that theologians call disputable matters, things that are not expressly commanded or expressly forbidden in Scripture. One such controversial issue Paul describes in, in verse 2. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then other issues are described in verse 5, special days, and verse 21, drinking wine. The, the weak conscience Christians had spent a lifetime observing meticulous dietary laws. Not only were certain animals ceremonially unclean, but meat very likely had been offered as a sacrifice to a pagan idol and then afterwards sold in the meat market. So you, you couldn't be sure whether the, eat, the meat you were about to eat had been offered to an idol or not. And for these believers, their conscience warned them that eating such meat would be dishonoring to the Lord. On the other hand, the strong conscience Christians knew that Jesus had called all food clean in Mark chapter 7, verse 19. They knew that an idol has no real existence and everything can be received with thanksgiving. And so their conscience didn't warn them. As a result, two groups began to emerge in the church. The strong conscience group who were free in their conscience with respect to these disputable matters, and the weak conscience group who were not free with respect to these matters. And then what often happens, the two groups began looking down on each other, began criticizing each other. Maybe went like this, strict ones couldn't believe these free ones. I can't believe they eat meat sacrificed to idols. And they call themselves Christians. And the free ones look down on the strict ones for having such exacting rules and being so legalistic. And these differences resulted in the potential for a split in every church. How could Paul keep this diverse church glued together? He could have made a rule, perhaps, you know, because in verse 14, we know that his personal position was that meat was clean. So he could, have, he could have ruled that meat is clean. Come on, everyone. Look at Mark chapter 7. Smarten up. But that would have violated the consciences of the weak. Or he could have prohibited meat. But that would have violated the freedoms of the strong. Paul had a dilemma. What is he going to do? How is he going to keep these churches glued together? And so Paul gives an extended treatment on this controversy, spanning 36 verses in chapter 14 and 15. 
and he masterfully lays out for us God's remedy for conscience controversies. And it's too much to look at in one go. Today we're going to look at four instructions. And these instructions particularly address the personal attitude we have as we approach a conscience controversy. What is the attitude we need to arm ourselves with when trying to deal with a conscience controversy? And then next week, by God's help, we will consider then how we live out our consciences within the church. So let's look at these four attitude instructions that we need to have to address issues of conscience. The first one we saw already, it is to welcome the one who is weak in faith, verses 1 and 2. First instruction, very simple. Those who are strong in conscience are to welcome those who are weak. That means that they are to receive, to accept, to love as brothers, no matter the differences or the disagreements on secondary issues. And, and Paul adds, not to quarrel over opinions. That means the welcome is genuine. It's not condescending. It's not with a hidden motive of of trying to show the weak where they're off base. Paul is commanding the strong conscience believers to welcome the weak ones without quarrels, accepting in love. And embedded in this command to welcome is a prohibition against division against breaking into separate groups, a weak group here, a strong group here, that then stand apart from each other and look askance against each other and criticize those on the other side. Here, Matthew Henry says, nothing is more threatening nor more often fatal to the Christian society than the contentions and divisions of their members. By these wounds, yea, the life and soul of religion often expire. Separation over primary issues relating to the gospel is unavoidable. But this kind of sectarian attitude that separates over secondary matters is a a devilish ploy that Satan uses to splinter churches and separate Christians. And we need to be wise to our enemy's devices. Paul knows that our tendency is to divide. The fact of the matter is, however, that when we divide, we forget that when we divide with one group of people, eventually we're going to disagree with the ones we've aligned ourselves with, and then we're going to divide again and divide again and divide again. There's going to be no end to division if what we're looking for is perfect alignment on every issue. Because no two people have perfect alignment in their conscience. For Christians, there's mostly overlap. Maybe 95% is all the same. But around the edges, there's difference. And your difference is different than my difference. And my difference is different than your difference. And all of our differences are different than God's perfect standard. Nobody has a conscience that exactly matches the will of God perfectly. Only the Lord Jesus in his life on earth had a conscience perfectly, perfectly calibrated to exactly confirm to the moral law of God in every respect. The rest of us, as long as we remain in this world, are going to face some areas where we are different. 
There might be areas that we feel are absolutely essential, Christians must follow, that our brother doesn't accept. And it may be that our brother has something that he believes this is my conscience before God that we don't understand. And it may be that God has things that he holds in his moral law that we are completely oblivious to. And so Paul's first instruction in conscience controversies is do not divide, but welcome. Welcome those who are weak. Of course, no doubt, you're thinking to yourself or wondering, well, who am I? Am I I the weak or am I the strong? Of course, we all fancy ourselves to be the strong. Nobody wants to think of themselves as weak. But, But the fact is, probably, we are weak in some areas and strong in others. And on a given issue, we might be weak and strong at the same time to different people. There's always going to be somebody on the left and somebody on the right in any issue. And so depending on the situation, God may be commanding us to obey Paul's exhortations both to the weak and to the strong. And this brings us to the second issue, the second instruction. Do not despise and do not judge. This is in verse 3 and 4. And then Paul repeats it again in verse 10 to 12. So let's begin with looking at 3. Verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God welcomed him. This verse addresses the particular temptations that face the strong and the weak on any issue. For the strong, the temptation is to despise the weak down on their scruples and their rules and think, those legalists, don't they know that we are justified by faith, not by law? How can they be such stick-in-the-muds and then view them with disdain for their lack of freedom? To these, Paul says, do not despise those who abstain. God forbids such arrogance and such attitude of superiority towards those with a more strict conscience. On the other hand, to those whose consciences consciences are more strictly bound, the temptation for them is, is to pass judgment on the ones who have more loose scruples than theirs. Thinking, how can they do that and call themselves Christians? They judge their brothers according to the stricter requirements of their own consciences and pass judgment. And to them, Paul says, do not judge the one who eats. These temptations to despise or to pass judgment persist in conscience controversies over secondary matters today. Whether the issue is meat or days or wine drinking or clothing choices or music or children's education or or what kind of movies we watch or medical decisions or mask wearing or a host of other things. The temptation facing Christians is the same. To splinter into our own group of like conscience believers. To go to one side of the field and one side of the field. And then the game becomes judging and criticizing and condemning and passing judgment on the ones on the opposite side. And God condemns this attitude. Look at verse 3 at the end. For God has welcomed him. 
God has welcomed your weaker conscience, brother. God has welcomed your stronger conscience, sister. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. And this verse teaches us the most important principle of conscience. And this is this. God is Lord of the conscience. God is the arbiter of whom he will accept, and whom he will judge. It is not you. It is not me. It is not me for myself or for anyone else. It's not you for yourself or for anyone else. God is Lord of conscience. And moreover, God will make the weaker or the stronger brother stand. God is that brother or that sister's master. Christ shed his blood for that sister or for that brother. And God is at work in him or in her by his Holy Spirit to keep them from stumbling. And so it is a great comfort that God will present them along with you and me blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. According to Jude verse 24, regardless of whether their conscience is strong or weak on secondary matters. God has welcomed him. So the weaker over here in this end of the field, the stronger over here in this end of the field, but Jesus is in the middle and Jesus is welcoming both. And he is beckoning both to come into the middle. You're playing the wrong game. The game is not who is right or who is wrong or whose position is more rigorous or who's more theologically acute. The game is unity in Christ. God is welcoming the weaker brother. God is welcoming the stronger brother and enabling both to stand before him. And then Paul, looking ahead, Paul repeats this prohibition again in verse 10, 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12 then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. We would judge others less in their position if we thought more on our position that is, our position as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We would despise others less if we remember how we ourselves must give an account to the Lord. And this brings us to the third position, the third instruction about conscience controversies. Let each one be fully convinced in their own mind. This is in verse 5. Let's look at verse 5. It says, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Uh, Paul is introducing another controversial issue in the Roman church, the, the issue of days. Probably referring to special uh, Jewish feast days, feast of booths, feast of uh, the Passover feast, feast, all of these different things that the Jews observed. Can you imagine the difficulty of being a Jew all your life, faithfully observing all of these feasts, all of these fasts, doing this, doing that, going to Jerusalem, coming home, all of these things, your whole life, 
then you're converted. And all of a sudden, you're, you're brought into this community filled with people who don't pay any attention. And you think to yourself, like, what's going on here? How can I not honor God in this way that I've been doing my whole life? And it's hard for you to adjust your conscience so that it doesn't warn you that you're doing something wrong when you aren't esteeming those days. And so Paul says, in, in that kind of secondary matter, that's okay. Just be fully convinced of your conscience position. And then live that decision consistently out before the Lord until he, by his word and spirit, adjusts your conscience otherwise. So this brings us to the second important principle of conscience. I know that there's a lot of numbers, I'm sorry. The first important principle of conscience, God is the Lord of the conscience. But the second principle of conscience is we must obey our conscience. God didn't give us a conscience to ignore it and tell it to be quiet. To do that, when you think it's warning you correctly, is always a sin. The first principle, God is the Lord. The second principle, I must obey my conscience. Now, what do we do when these principles contradict each other? What do you do when your principle is warning, your conscience is warning you in an area that is contradicting to God's word? Or if God's word is commanding you in an area that violates your conscience? How do you resolve this conflict? It is here that principle number one takes precedence over principle number two. You must obey the Lord, not your conscience. Your conscience is not the Lord of your conscience. God is the Lord of all of our conscience. Being convinced in your own mind, it doesn't mean unwilling to change. It means that we're willing to adjust our conscience to better align with the moral will of God as he reveals that will to us from his word. And so instruction from the word of God is so crucial and submission to those that God has given to instruct you is also so important because the word of God is the organ and the preacher of God is the, the means of grace by which God ultimately will Act on your conscience to bring it into conformity to Christ. So God is the one who looses or binds the conscience. It's not even my own heart. And we can see an example of this in Acts chapter 10. Remember uh, Apostle Peter, he was on the roof of the house. He was in Joppa. He was hungry. He began to pray. Then he fell into a trance and he had a vision of all kinds of unclean animals being uh, let down in the sheet. And then the Lord speaks to him and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responds, By no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Acts chapter 10, 13, and 14. What does the Lord say? The Lord says, What God has made clean, do not call common. And that happens three times. And by this vision, the Lord is adjusting Peter's conscience so that he'll be ready to go into the house of Cornelius at the end of the chapter, the Gentile centurion, and thereby open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. 
Then later in that chapter, when, Paul, when Peter is, is appearing before Cornelius, he even says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter had a conscience, but God recalibrated Peter's conscience in order to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Imagine what would have happened if Peter had maintained his conscience position regardless of what the Lord was saying. He would have been treating his conscience as an idol. He would be defying the Lord and he would be closing the gospel door to the Gentiles. So being convinced in our own mind means that we examine our conscience position in light of the scripture, the only thing that has authority to bind it, and we obey it, our conscience, consistently until the Lord adjusts it according to his word. It means also we must be very careful about which issue we adjust or, or that we promote to the level of conscience. A conscience conviction is not just a strong preference. A conscience conviction is to say, for me in this area, to do this or not to do this is sin, even though the Bible doesn't say it is sin. Those in Rome who refrained from eating meat, they didn't change their conscience when they became hungry. They obeyed their conscience until the Lord led them to a more thorough understanding from his word. And we should do the same. We should be consistent. Whatever our position is, we should be consistent to obey our conscience before God, but always ensuring that our conscience is warning us properly according to Scripture. Which brings us to the last attitude point that Paul makes. In verses 6 to 9, we live to the Lord. Up to now, we've had a whole bunch of uh, command statements, imperative statements, do this, don't do this. Look at in verse 6, Paul transitions to a bunch of indicative statements, statements that are statements of truth. And this is so beautiful. I think at this point, Paul recognizes we need a break. We need to have our focus adjusted away from our conscience controversies and issues and disagreements and this and that and days and need and everything. We need our focus to be moved from those things to the most important thing. So let's look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. We see that Paul is very generous to both sides. He assumes the weak, their motivation in abstaining is to honor God. And, and the strong, their motivation in partaking is also to honor God. And they do so with thanksgiving. We can learn something from Paul. Don't assume the worst of those who disagree. The Lord gives the benefit of the doubt. Uh, excuse me, love gives the benefit of the doubt when there's areas of difference. We are often quick to vilify, quick to be blinded by self-assurance in the legitimacy of our position and then lose charity towards 
those who are our brothers in the Lord. Of course, verse 6 also forces us to stop and examine our own conscience position and then ask the question, in my conscience conviction, am I motivated truly by the honor of God? Is my motivation truly God's glory? Or am I motivated even a little bit with my liberty, my freedom, my viewpoint, my prerogatives? In short, Paul is saying, are we living for myself or am I living for Christ? And that's the ultimate question, not just in conscience controversies, but all of life. But it is the question, especially in conscience controversies. Why am I being controversial? Who am I living for? Which brings us to verse 7 and verse 8. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So whatever the conscience position might be on a given issue, Paul's saying our mindset needs to be set on living for the Lord, not for self. And this mindset is something that the weak and the strong both share. Whatever differences might be driving them apart, their shared union in the life of Christ puts these minor differences into their proper perspective. We're not pulling against each other. We're not on opposite teams. We're on the same team, the weak and the strong. We might differ in various matters, but alike belong to the Lord. And both make it our ambition to live not for self, but for the Lord. And Paul grounds this in the absolute authority and, and, and dominion of Christ in verse 9. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The sovereignty and dominion of Christ are the fruit and the end of his death and resurrection, upon which he is now the universal head and always the universal head of all things to the church. And so if Christ has paid so dearly for the soul's of his people. And if Christ, through his death and resurrection, is now the sole and undisputed right to exercise dominion over his church, we must not invade his authority by judging the consciences of our brethren. This is a season abounding with differences and disagreements. Various conscience convictions are swirling all about. It's very easy to be distracted. And it's very easy to have our eyes taken off of Christ. It's very easy to treat our brother who has a difference in us in whatever issue as an opponent. Isn't it? Scriptures remind us that even when we're dealing with serious conscience controversies within the church, our focus must never be lost. That what ultimately unites us is shared life in Christ. 
as important as conscience, convictions on secondary matters are. They must not distract us from the ultimate reality that Christ has died and lives again and he is the Lord of all the living. My dear brothers and my sisters, this is true Christianity that makes Christ all in all. Whatever you do, Colossians 3.17 says, you do it unto the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Conscience controversies can so quickly devolve into seeking my own advantage. You can't make me do this. I cannot give up that. We become so concerned with what we want to do or what we don't want to do. Anything that limits our freedom, we treat as a threat. And then the result is that Christ's body is left aside and duties to one another are overlooked and love for the brethren becomes cold. Oh, this should not be. The antidote that Paul gives us is to recognize that we live unto the Lord. Living for Christ sacrifices any preference, any freedom, any desire to him. It seeks no other commendation but the Lord's. We walk with him to please him, knowing that he is the one to whom we will all give an account. We are not our own masters. We live to glorify him in all actions and affairs of life, even in death, whether it be a natural death or a violent death. Our aim is to glorify him until we are glorified in him. So then whether we live or die, we are devoted to Christ. We depend on Christ and we look ahead to be with Christ. And any personal liberty can be set aside in love because of the exceeding greatness of living for Christ. Christ is the center in which all the lines of life and death meet and from which all the lines of love for brother and love for sister and love for the lost go out for the glory of God. And so, what should our attitude be as we approach controversies of conscience? We need to remember that our conscience is given to us by God as a warning system. And we need to obey it for the glory of God. But we also need to remember the higher principle that Christ Jesus is the Lord of the conscience. And we must be willing for him to recalibrate it according to his word. Paul tells us, welcome one another. Do not despise. Do not pass judgment. But live for Christ. Next week, we're going to consider the practical applications of how we can live out these principles, how we can actually live according to our conscience in the church. But for now, would you examine yourself in light of these exhortations? Are your conscience convictions prompting you to live more for Christ or more for self? Are your conscience convictions drawing you to press into Christ, into his word, into his people more or less? Are they drawing you closer to your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died and in whom you are being prepared as his glorious, perfect, and holy bride? Or are your convictions pushing you farther away? 
May God forgive our hard hearts toward one another. May God forgive our insistence to please ourselves rather than to please our brother for his good. May may God help us to so delight in the person and the work of Christ our Savior that we can welcome all those whom he has accepted. That we think more about what I can give up for the glory of Christ and the advance of his kingdom than what is being taken away from me. That we have an eye to press into union with Christ and union with God's people rather than an eye to see the things that are holding us back. Some Christians are weak. Some are strong. Yet we are all the Lord's. May God help us to live together in him for one another, for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you for your most perfect and holy word. O Lord, we pray, guide us to be ones that obey our conscience in the Lord. Guide us to be ones, Lord, whose conscience do conform to your moral will. Guide us, O Lord, to welcome one another without judgment, without condemnation. Guide us, O Lord, to be the ones that live for Christ. Thank you that it is the glorious union of life with Christ that unites us. O God, may we unite around life in Christ so that the unity that we have in him shines forth the glory of your name to a watching world. Examine our hearts in these areas. Convict us of sin. Bring us into repentance and obedience to Christ. And I pray in his glorious name. Amen.